Hello everybody. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Anil Bangu and I'm a colorectal surgeon at the University Hospitals of Birmingham in the United Kingdom and I'm the chief investigator of the COVID surge platform. Thank you for joining us and in particular thank you to those who have contributed data into this collaborative and it's a true collaborative because without the whole picture one person's individual data um, is not impactful. Uh, so I'm here representing both the team of people who have delivered this study, the management team, um, and also to the individual surgical teams who have contributed data. So thank you very much. Um, I think we are all, why are we here? Well, we're all here under a veil of humility because we're all here to benefit our patients. And I think we're all aware that during this COVID crisis, there have been many deaths. For some of you, that will include friends and colleagues. For some of us, and a lot of us, that will include patients, some of whom we will have operated on. So any congratulations within this webinar is muted because we are really here to learn for the future and how we can improve things for patients. So today we are moving into an era of data-driven um, surgical decisions and we're going to present the results of the first 1,000 patients entered into the COVID surge study. Um, the analysis is a few days behind data entry, but it is worth noting that in total the database has 9,500 patients across the COVID surge and COVID surge cancer platforms. And you should be very proud of that as a collaborative. That has come from 530 hospitals in 60 countries. And that will make this, both now and in the future, one of the most influential modern day collaboratives for the 2020 to 2030 surgical era. I am pleased to announce that that first thousand patients, that analysis has been published, accepted for publication in the Lancet, which will make it an important and influential cohort study. And we expect to see that coming online um, as soon as possible, but we will be presenting the results from that today. Um, I'd like to take a moment to introduce um, the panelists and speakers today. So it's a pleasure to introduce Brittany Bankhead Kendall. Hello, Brittany. Hi. Hi, nice to see you. Yes, good morning from the United States. Uh, my name's Brittany Bankhead Kendall. I am in Boston, Massachusetts. I work in the Department of Surgery and Critical Care at Massachusetts General Hospital, and I am honored to be here this morning. Thank you for joining us. Antonio Ramos de la Medina. I'm Antonio Ramos. I'm a gastrointestinal surgeon in Veracruz in the southeast of Mexico. And I'm very pleased also to be here today. Thank you, Anil. It is lovely to see you. And Antonio and I work on the, the um, Global Surge Collaborative together. Um, over to the other side of Europe now. So, uh, Gitano Gallo, it's nice to see you. Thanks, Anil. It's a pleasure to be part of this group. I'm a colorectal surgeon at the Department of Medical and Surgical Sciences in Italy, in the south of Italy, Catanzaro. Thank you for joining us. Um, we also have Joanna Sumoas and Dmitry Nepogodiev, who, um, who are two of the team who have driven the collaborative forward and will be giving their talks later. If you guys can introduce yourselves at the start of your talks, but maybe just a little wave just to check you can hear. Hi, guys. And I'm going to pass over to Lizzie, who's another one of our uh, research fellows and a trainee um, colorectal surgeon. And Lizzie, could you give us, say hello, and can you give us the results of the first poll and open the second one, please? Yes. Hello, everybody. I'm Lizzie, um, one of the research fellows here in Birmingham. The results of the first poll does show that most of our audience are from Europe. Um, for our next poll, what we'd like to ask is if you have taken part in COVID surge already. Um, and please let us know. Thank you very much. We'll be giving information out later about um, how to rewatch this and how to get um, the CPD certificates. But to kick things off, we were going to go to um, Antonio, who's just going to give us a, a few of his early thoughts about context of data. 
So Antonio, over to you for some thoughts, please. Thank you, Anil. Well, I think this pandemic has made clear how fragile our systems are and that we must collaborate and that collaboration is fundamental for tackling these problems. I think it's a stress test on governments, on society and on our health systems. And it has made clear that it's only by working together that we can tackle these, these problems. I think it should also make apparent that this is not the time to walk away from data and evidence-driven decision-making. So this uh, opportunity for us to work together, to bring data together, and be able to actually be part of the solution with data, something that is based on observation and collaboration, will make a difference. It's also a great revealer of how important global health is and how intertwined our systems are. And I think by the, the speed that COVID search has been recruiting patients, it's also clear that it has catapulted also collaboration on the, on the front lines of, of health. And also has made clear that surgery, it's part of global health and that it's, it's a significant part and an indivisible part of, of the health system. But it can also be excuse for some people to isolate themselves. Some nations do not work together and we should also be aware of that. So I think that this collaboration, this, this first paper published in The Lancet will be, uh, will be important for this to, to be a better, a better area of research. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for those very timely words. Um, and just before we start unpicking the data, Lizzie, do you want to give the results of the second poll? Sure. So the second poll shows that, um, in fact, uh, just by a small um, uh, margin, uh, most of you have actually already contributed to both COVID search and cancer COVID search. So thank you very much for your collaboration. Very much appreciated. Um, but uh, there will be other details later on if you are interested in joining. Okay, thank you very much. So I'm going to hand over to Dimitri now, uh, who's going to be opening uh, with the first talk that's going to be based on the methodology and overall results. Uh, then we'll run pretty quickly into Joanna, who will be talking about risk stratifying individual patients. So I'll hand control over to them. They'll be sharing their screen and showing the results. So Dimitri, over to you, please. Okay. Um, so thank you very much, everyone, for joining. It's a great pleasure to... Um, present the first results from COVID surge. It's been a, uh, a fantastic effort, uh, as Anil has said, by so many people collecting around and contributing to this. So uh, just a short introduction to what we've done. It's an international multi-center cohort study uh, where we've included patients undergoing any kind of surgery from any specialty, elective or emergency, um, who had perioperative SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, so that's the coronavirus, um, either within seven days before or the 30 days after surgery. We've included patients who had either laboratory, radiological, or clinically diagnosed coronavirus. Um, the primary outcome that we'll be presenting today was 30-day mortality, and the secondary outcome is 30-day pulmonary complications, and that includes pneumonia, ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome and unexpected post-operative ventilation. So that's where a patient has been extubated after the end of the operation. And for whatever reason, um, they've had to be re-intubated subsequently. Um, so this study includes a range of patients. So there will be patients who um, were infected at home in the community with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the coronavirus, and who've then gone on to develop the COVID-19 disease, um, which is the symptomatic form of, of the disease. So they might already be preoperatively quite sick, uh, and these are likely to be the emergency patients. Um, there might be patients who um, were infected in the community but had asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 virus asymptomatically. Um, and there may not have been known at the time of surgery. And then postoperatively, they've developed 
the COVID-19 symptomatic disease. Um, there might be patients who had asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 and have not developed any kind of symptoms or signs or complications of that. And finally, there might be patients who um, did not have SARS-CoV-2 before surgery, but after the time of surgery in hospital, um, they've been infected, hospital acquired, uh, and, and then developed symptoms. So these are just a few of the scenarios. It's quite a heterogeneous group of patients with different types of um, pathway, but what's common to all of them is that they, they have SARS-CoV-2 infection, either in the seven days before or the 30 days after surgery. Um, so as Neil has already said, this has been a massive international collaboration, uh, and it's such a pleasure to be able to present these results um, to many of you who've participated. Um, so in total, we're presenting data on the first 1,128 patients, but um, as you've heard, we've got many more patients now entered onto the database. So this is just the first snapshot of the results. Uh, and those patients came from 235 hospitals across 24 countries, um, which you can see they're shaded in green um, across uh, North America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. Uh, and this has been a massive effort with over 1,200 collaborators participating across the world. So thank you to everyone who's, who's put so much time and effort at a difficult time into this. So the demographics for the patients we've included, around one quarter of the patients had a known SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis preoperatively. So the other three quarters of patients had a post-operative diagnosis. The vast majority, 94%, had laboratory or CT scan proven SARS-CoV-2. Most patients, about 75%, had emergency surgery, and obviously the remainder, a quarter, had elective surgery. Just over half the patients had surgery for benign diseases, um, so that could be something like appendicitis, um, inflammatory bowel disease, as examples. Um, a quarter of patients had surgery for cancer, and 20% for trauma. And this has been, I think, one of the most exciting things about this project is the pan-specialty nature of it. Um, and just about a third of the patients were gastrointestinal, but then there was representation from across all surgical specialties. Um, so the second biggest specialty contributing data was orthopedics, with 27% of the patients, and then cardiothoracics. Um, but as I say, all specialties are represented. So here, here are the headline results um, amongst our patients. So these are a variety of emergency and elective patients having minor, major procedures across all specialties. Overall mortality rate in patients with perioperative SARS-CoV infection was 23.8%. And when we split that into the elective and emergency groups, we can see that actually even in the elective patients, the mortality rate is very high, 18.9%. Um, and then it's 25.6% in the emergency patients. So across both groups, it's a high mortality rate. Um, when we split the patients according to the timing of diagnosis, um, again, the mortality rates are very high uh, and roughly similar, about 21 to 25% across both groups. So it doesn't look like having a pre- or a post-operative diagnosis makes that much difference to your mortality rate um, on this level. As I mentioned, the secondary outcome measure were pulmonary complications. Um, and these were pneumonia, ARDS, unexpected ventilation. In our group of patients, around 51% of all patients developed these pulmonary complications. Um, and just to put that into context, we think that if you look at all patients having surgery in normal circumstances, the pulmonary complication rate would be approximately 8%. So this is a much higher rate of pulmonary complications than we would normally expect, over half of patients. And it, once patients develop pulmonary complications, the mortality rate in those patients is very high, 38%. Um, again, this is quite significant because normally uh, the mortality rate 
in patients with pulmonary complications is much lower, under 10%. So this is a, uh, these patients are very likely to develop pulmonary complications, and once they do, there are very increased risk of mortality. When we split those pulmonary complications down by um, the exact type of complication, what you'll find is that 40% of patients overall, so of all patients, 40% had a pneumonia. 14% had acute respiratory distress syndrome, and 21% had unexpected ventilation. And each of these is associated with a high mortality rate, but in particular, the patients with ARDS have a 63% mortality. Uh, and just to put that into perspective, um, usually less than 1% of patients would have ARDS. So these patients are at very increased risk of ARDS. And then this mortality rate is greatly increased to what it would normally be for. So the take-home messages are that in these patients, across all types of surgery having um, perioperative SARS-CoV-2 infection, there's a high overall mortality rate and a high overall pulmonary complication rate. Most deaths in this population are in patients who have had pulmonary complications. Uh, and that does suggest that it is the pulmonary complications that are, are sadly um, leading to these patients' deaths. And even in the patients having elective surgery, this was associated with a substantial risk, 19% mortality. Um, so, so these are, I think, the key headline messages from the study. Um, thank you very much. Okay, well done, Dimitri. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to say we're c collecting questions from the audience, so please keep sending them in, which we're going to put to our panel for discussion. One quick question for Dimitri w Would you say, with those mortality rates, that this study only includes high risk patients who are going to be subject to high mortality anyway? Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, overall, the, the, we, we have a mix of patients across specialties, as we've mentioned. So there are patients from breast surgery, uh, from ophthalmology, specialties that are, have very low baseline risks of mortality. And also we have um, a mix of patients from uh, having minor procedures like appendectomy, uh, hernia repairs, um, as well as the major surgery. So it is, a, it is a wide range of procedures we've included, and, and I don't think all of these patients are high risk. They would not normally have these poor outcomes. Okay, thank you very much. We're going to move over to um, Joanna. Um, so, Joanna, I'll ask you to introduce yourself, please, um, and then launch into your presentation, which is on the risk stratification of individual patients. Hello, Anil. Thank you. Um, I am uh, Joanna. I'm a research fellow in the Global Surgery Unit, and I am a surgical trainee originally from Portugal, now doing research in the University of Birmingham. Um, thank you very much. Um, today I'm here to give a bit more detail about the risk factors that can be associated with post-operative mortality um, and that we found that in, in our study. Um, the first thing I would like to show is this graph. So this chart um, shows you the 30-day mortality rates by subgroup of patients. Um, the blue bars show you the mortality rates for the male patients and the pink bars for the female patients. And we can see here an overall trend for male patients to have worse outcomes in terms of post-operative mortality than the female patients. This graph also shows um, a, a subdivision by age group. So you can see the results for patients under 70 years old and over 70 years old. And you also can see that the mortality rates are much higher in the older group than in the younger group. You can also, uh, we also divided the patients by the procedures they were, um, they, they underwent. Um, and you can see uh, a, an overall trend for the major procedures and the emergency procedures to lead to higher mortality after surgery. 
but perhaps it's it's good to have a, a, an overall look at this but also very interesting to have a look at the exact numbers for the mortality rates in the different groups because you can see that there is in the bottom of the chart um, a group of patients who are at greater risk of post-operative mortality uh, previous studies have identified that the uh, post-operative mortality rate for an emergency laparotomy, for instance, is about 15%. It can go up until 24-25% in really high risk and frail patients. But this study shows that in the COVID area, in the COVID era, patients um, have a, high, uh, a mortality rate that can go up to 30 and more than 40% after surgery, which is so we are definitely looking at um, uh, a time and a group of patients with um, high risk of dying after surgery during the COVID pandemic. And then um, probably to translate this data in our, uh, into our clinical decision making, it's important to look at the different risk factors and um, understand how they impact um, mortality after surgery. And to do that, we performed a regression um, model analysis that I'm going to share with everyone today. Um, just to give you a brief um, explanation how to understand the results and, and um, with the, the example of the, the first risk factor that we're analyzing, which is age. Um, we've performed this analysis to give us um, comparison between a group uh, which in this case is patients older than 70 years old and um, a reference group which is the patients younger than 70 years old and we can see here that the odds ratio between those two groups is 2.3 and this means that patients aged over 70 years old are who undergo surgery and have a SARS-CoV-2 in infection in the perioperative period are twice more likely to die than patients under 70 years old. The confidence intervals are here to uh, give us a bit of um, understanding about how robust is this result. The confidence interval shouldn't include the number one because that would mean that both groups could have no difference between them. So this confidence interval um, is quite satisfactory for this result and the p-value also gives us a double check about significance. Regarding sex, male patients also are at greater risk of mortality with an odds ratio of 1.7 and a ASA grade of 3 to 5 also uh, is associated with an odds ratio of 2.3 when compared to patients with an ASA grade of 1 to 2. Cancer patients are at particular risk with an odds ratio of 1.055 when compared to benign disease patients and obstetrics. Trauma surgery didn't show um, particular, particularly significant difference when compared to benign disease. As we can see, this um, odds ratio is not um, 0. 97 and uh, the intervention, uh, the confidence interval includes the number one. Um, regarding the type of procedure, um, emergency surgery uh, does have an impact in 30-day uh, mortality when compared to elective, the odds ratio is 1.6. And uh, major procedures also have an odds ratio of 1.5 when compared to minor procedures. The last variable in this table is the timing of diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And here we compare the patients who were diagnosed after surgery and before surgery. You can see that the odds ratio is near one and um, the confidence interval does contain the number one. So we can't really say that there is a difference between those two groups. And the take uh, the message that we should take from this is that regardless the timing that patients get infected, um, having an operation during the COVID-19 pandemic does lead to bad outcomes and high mortality because of the other findings. 
Um, we performed also a sensitivity, sensitivity analysis just for the patients who had a swab proven SARS-CoV-2 infection. As you know, um, and Dmitri mentioned, we included patients who had either a swab proven infection, um, a CT scan or radiology radiologically um, diagnosed SARS-CoV-2 infection or a clinical diagnosis. This was a pragmatic approach to um, an enable centers to take part um, and because we know that swab and um, imaging is not wild, widely available in many of the centers who took part in COVID search. And this is, these are the overall results, results for this analysis. So the patients, um, with a swab-proven SARS-CoV-2 infection have the same risk factors associated to mortality than the, the overall group. And the main thing that we can take from this is that if you work in a hospital where the laboratory or imaging study is not available, a clinical suspicion of COVID um, should lead you to um, to decide in the same direction, which is avoid surgery as much as possible because the outcomes of surgery during the pandemic are, are much worse than, than before. Overall, the take-home messages from this are the threshold for surgery should definitely be raised during the COVID-19 pandemic. We should shift to only operate patients if they really need to, for instance, life-saving procedures, and we should make more use of non-operative management these days. There is a group of patients at a particular risk who are men aged over 70 undergoing emergency or elective major surgery, and these patients do have worse out outcomes than the others. But overall, all subgroups of patients are now at greater risk of post-operative mortality than they were in the pre-COVID era. And this was the main message that I wanted to, to tell you today. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much, Joanna. I, I had a, a question about um, data completeness and how much missing data there was in this series. And do you know? Um, so... Actually, the missing data was incredibly low in this, in this study. It's um, less than 2% overall. And I, I must say that this is only due to the hard work of our teams in many, many countries that are contributing with data and making a lot of effort to, to complete the data points. Thank you, thank you to them. So to remind everyone, this is a group of patients who all have a perioperative diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2. So what we're trying to do with that data is unpick the biology of the disease in these surgical patients. So we're going to try and keep the discussion today around that factor, what happens in the biology of the disease. Because once we understand that, we can start to unpick the other things about provision of surgery. It's also notable that this was at an early phase of the pandemic. So this is the first 1,000 patients out of 9,500. But what I'd like to do now is go to our panelists and ask for, for a brief interpretation of what this information um, means in their context. So Gatano, please, could I start with you for, for a comment? Okay, thank you. Um... The indication, I think, that uh, as you already know, Italy has been heavily hit by COVID-19 pandemic, and today is still one of the most affected countries in the world. The indication we have obtained from this data is clear, and it's also perfectly correlated with normal clinical practice. We must pay attention to all patients with these characteristics characteristics this Joanna has already uh, described to us. Um, the criteria for diagnosis and for access to the operating room, I think that must be standardized. And the clinical diagnosis is not enough, I think, because in our study, 6% uh, of the patients has uh, uh, had the clinical diagnosis. And I think uh, this is not enough. Um, uh, furthermore, our 30-day our, uh, mortality was associated with male patients, uh, malignant disease, emergency, and major surgery. 
So uh, we can learn from this data and try to improve in the future. That's what I think. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Brittany, could I come to you next, please, and ask for a, a comment on the view of this data from the USA? Yeah, so uh, Boston has also been a hotspot uh, here in the United States. And as we start to approach our surge numbers coming down, I think it's really important that we also take pause and recognize that as we begin to think about elective surgery recommencing and what that looks like in a risk stratification and how we educate patients about the risk and benefit of both minor and major elective surgeries, um, what that means for this patient population is going to be really important moving forward. And even if, I mean, as we've seen, even if they don't come in with a diagnosis of COVID-19, um, just being in a mixed hospital, if you will, taking care of both types of patients does lend itself to the opportunity for a nosocomial risk and higher um, opportunity for some of these perioperative complications. So I think keeping that in mind as we counsel our patients moving forward is going to be really important. No, and I agree with that. Thank you very much. Um, Antonio, could you give us a, a view for Mexico, please? Thank you, Anil. Well, I don't think that any of us surgeons is willing to tolerate this increased risk of mortality in our patients. And uh, I really believe that there is a need for a risk stratification to improve research in risk stratification and, and prophylactic interventions that will help us mitigate this because COVID-19 looks like it's gonna be with us for, for a few months, if not more. Uh, surgical practice needs to, needs to restart, but we must take this into account in order for it to do it safely and effectively. And, and another uh, thought, I think that it's now us older male that understand what inequality feels like. So it's something that we must take into account. I'm not sure if you include me in that group or not, but, um, but that, thank you very much. Now we've had over 250 questions come in um, about the data. So we're not going to be able to answer those all today. So we're gonna answer um, a selection of them. And I'd remind you that we're expecting the paper to come live in about, hopefully about seven days or so. And, and that will of course give you the, the full set of information. But we're gonna, we're gonna hear from our speakers. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna split the questions into two sets. Those around the data, and in a few minutes time, we'll just come to what we call the post-outbreak phase, the recovery phase, and how we're going to use this data going forward. Um, but to start, and I'd like, the, I'll post some of these to the panelists, but for some of the detailed results, um, Dimitri, there are a lot of questions about specific specialties. And, and, and if, I, if I was, if I'm looking at my group of patients, how do I take forward this information for specific specialties? Um, so uh, in, in the published paper, uh, a few people have asked about exactly what patients have been included. We will give a breakdown of all the specialties and also the specific operations that were included in the study. So you, you'll be able to get a feeling for what sort of patients um, were there and uh, what were the common operations. Um, in, in the medium term, we're hoping that some of our colleagues uh, who've been working with us will uh, work on sub-analyses to get specific data, for example, for neck femur fractures or for head and neck uh, surgery. So um, this is really just the beginning and we'll have more granular data in the, in the medium term. But my feeling overall, having seen the data, is that the outcomes are broadly consistent across specialties. And I don't think you will find that there's a particular specialty where the risks of the patients is, is zero or um, 100%. Most are clustered in the same sort of area. Thank you. Um, there's a question from Same who has asked on this analysis, it looks like elderly men with a SARS-CoV-2 infection who are over the age of 70, ASA3, 
uh, 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 maybe undergoing a cancer operation at the highest risk. A question for Brittany, please. And, and if Antonio and Gatea want to comment too, that's fine. But Brittany, if I was a patient, I would perhaps be wondering if I need to be scared of surgery in this era or if I should still come forward and seek help. So more at a community level, what, what, what are you going to be telling patients going forward? Yeah, I think, I think, again, this comes back to beginning with the surgeon-patient relationship, just like we do for any elective operation. And we sit down with these patients and we discuss the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives. And some of those alternatives may need to evolve with local tumor boards and thorough discussions about can we change our neoadjuvant practices in order to avoid surgery longer? Can we um, mitigate risk in other ways by changing our chemotherapeutic regimens? Um, can we delay an operation safely or is the risk benefit ratio really leaning more heavily towards an operation? Um, I think that is something done at the local and institutional level and depending on your geography and where you lie, in the outbreak in your um, local area and then having a frank discussion about the results of this paper giving us something objective and finite to quote to these patients and having that discussion very frankly. Thank you. Gatano, have, have conversations with patients in Italy changed around seeking help both as an emergency or in the elective setting? Yeah, of course, it's changed because uh, we should explain all the risk uh, to the patient, as Brittany uh, has already said to us. In fact, the recommendation should be tailored and based on the impact of the disease on the regional and the, uh, the country health organization and according to the emergency level of every single hospital or country. Uh, and most of all, we should balance. We should balance the risk associated with the uh, with the, uh, COVID-19 against the risk of delaying surgery in individual patients. So we should explain to the patient, but we should also think about it. Antonio, can I ask you, if you had, a, if, if you were on the upward curve in your hospital uh, and you had a patient maybe with a, a previous pulmonary problem, asthma, uh, who needed, um, you know, who had something, let's say like simple appendicitis, what do you think of this concept of treating them with non-operative techniques while the hospital is so infected? Well, that, that's a great question, Anil. Uh, one of the problems that we have in Mexico, and as you mentioned, we are on the way up of the curve and we're getting more cases every day. One of the problems that we have in a country like ours is that surgical practice is very heterogeneous. And we don't have really that much of experience in non-operative management of uh, acute ap appendicitis. However, I think this is the time that we can probably not only have in frank conversations with the patients so that they understand the risk, but also it's a time to reflect and work in a multidisciplinary way in our systems to approach these, these diseases differently. One of the things that we've been doing, not only in, in emergency surgery, is that some of the protocols around the country have switched to adjuvant you know, chemoradiation to neoadjuvant chemoradiation in order to mitigate and buy some time. And this may, we may find this uh, to be important data that we can now learn from, even if it's due to a crisis. So in acute and emergency diseases, we, I think we, we're going to learn a great deal of things in the next following weeks. Mm, thank you. Uh, a question for Joanna. So there, there have been a few questions about issues around BMI, which, which is obesity, and ethnicity, smoking, um, and lung, previous lung problems. Does your data set shed any light on any of those or, or any future points we're collecting? Um, thank you, Neil. Uh, so we... 
We know that we've set up a study that needed to change over time. Um, and uh, when we, we started doing this, we started with um, something that is a bit different from what we have now. And we have learned from, from the main analysis from this first set of thousand patients. And we've learned as well from the feedback of our collaborators. So for instance, BMI that you've mentioned is going to be collected um, in now, but it was not collected in the beginning. So fortunately in the next um, analysis that we're planning um, later, we will be able to show that, that uh, those results. And also about other comorbidities, um, fortunately, we have some data in this data set, but fortunately the next analysis will include, will include much more patients with a range of, um, within a range of specialties and will be able to tell us more about that. So I think we're looking forward to, to the next one. Thank you. Dimitri, George has asked if we have any information on the risk of performing laparoscopic and open surgery. That's not related to the surgeon, that's a patient-related risk. Um, so that data is being collected as part of the COVID surge cancer project, I believe. So I think when, when we uh, look at sub-analyses in the colorectal esophageal patients, um, I think that kind of data will come out. Um, in this data, we haven't really looked at that because uh, so many of the patients were having orthopedic surgery, thoracic surgery, neurosurgery, that um, uh, laparoscopy would be a minority of patients who are having that in, in this pan-specialty cohort. So I think when we look at the specialty-specific cohorts, we'll be able to explore that in more detail. Thank you. Antonio, uh, Maria and a few other people have asked that this is the data from the outbreak phase and we need to be prepared for the surge phases. So if we had a, a mildly symptomatic patient awaiting elective or emergency surgery and we, we sent a swab but the swab result isn't back, if the, uh, if the patient looks relatively well but has a minor cough, would, would you and you're, you're, you're now three months in the future, you're in a little surge, you're not in outbreak, would you perform surgery on them or would you wait? I think I would, I would also risk stratification. Uh, one of the things that we have uh, learned in the last few weeks is that CT scan is also very helpful for us. It has been since we've been having problems in getting the swabs back on time for, for the patients to be uh, evaluated uh, completely. And we need to think about this, the, the going into surgery on a COVID positive patient, it's not only a risk for the patients, but it's also a risk for the surgeons. So I think we need to take that into account and it'll, it'll change how people think about it. Now, now where we both have a vested interest in doing the right thing. Mm. Thank Probably. you. Gatano, over to you. I think we should consider each patient as a COVID-19 positive patient because we don't know now when things will, will, will go back to normal and we cannot, we cannot postpone surgical treatment under the assumption, assumption that the risk of hospitalization will be lower in the near future. So each patient should be considered as a COVID-19 patient. A CT scan is really important and we, we cannot base our decision uh, on a clinical diagnosis. So I perfectly agree with Antonio. Thank you. Brit, can I come to Brittany? I, I'm going to give you a, a hypothetical situation. Let's say I'm in, I'm in part of the world where I can send a swab, but I can't do a CT scan. Um, and, and that happens to all of us for various reasons. So in a patient, I think in a patient who has um, mild symptoms and it's life-saving, we probably proceed to surgery. In a patient where it's not life-saving, um, and I'm talking over the whole range of specialties, there's an argument to go to theatre, there's an argument not to go to theatre. What, what would you do? Yeah, that is, that is a really tough <laughs> scenario. <laughs> um, but I, I agree with Antonio in that it really comes back to this objective data that we have now and risk stratifying and really looking at the patient. And yes, you gave, you gave the operative history, but what about the patient history and what is their age? What is their gender? What are, 
um, some of their comorbidities and risk stratifying at the patient level. And then also looking at your, your local institutional resources and seeing is our ICU completely full? Are all of our ventilators being used? And someone who has a maybe elective sort of procedure that wouldn't normally require an ICU stay thereafter, well, that might change now. And if our ICU is at capacity um, and we can hold off at all on this operation, then we really need to take all of those factors into consideration. Um, thank you. Lizzie, do you think, I'm going to ask you a question, we need to have some information to um, consent our patients going forward. Do you think this information can be used for consenting patients? Yes, absolutely. Um, we know that the very often when we speak to our patients that um, we like to provide them with as much information of outcomes and it is always a balance of risk versus benefit and very occasionally we do need to quote exact figures from previous data but this entire thing has now been shifted by COVID so it is important to have large high quality data that can provide these objective figures so that we are able to speak to our patients so that they can have informed consent. So this is very important for that purpose and um, will serve patients well so that they understand what they're going to have and also our decision making as well if it has changed. And you're working with Mary who's one of the other research fellows to produce um a patient information is that going to be um, freely available to download anywhere in the world or is it just the UK? Uh, it will be freely available to download anywhere in the world. Um, Mary has done a lot of work on this as well uh, to sort of lead this so that we have um, very accessible data that is patient friendly for patient facing material um, so that they can navigate this very tricky scenario that they are under, that they um, need an operation so uh, that a pathology is threatening them so that they need an operation. But at the same time, having an operation is risky in itself. And um, yeah, my colleague Mary Venn has put to, uh, together a very good um, package for them. Um, Dimitri, Soji from Lagos in Nigeria has asked whether we need to be doing more to protect patients in the future who are going to be coming into hospital and our hospitals will potentially have some degree of COVID-19 and whether or not there are any research strategies which we can execute specifically to protect surgical patients. Do you have any thoughts there? Um, well, I think that's an interesting question. Thank you, uh, Soji. Um, at the moment, there's quite a lot of research trials ongoing looking at treatment of COVID-19 in patients in the community or maybe in hospital. Um, and one of the questions that arises is that are there perhaps drugs that can be used not only to treat COVID-19, but actually to prevent it from occurring in the first place? Um, so for example, um, there is a suggestion that antiretrovirals may not be very effective to treat COVID-19 because by the time that you're symptomatic, your viral load is very high. But does that suggest that similar to how in HIV, there is now um, widespread pre-exposure prophylaxis used, should we be thinking about starting patients who are in the perioperative phase on um, antivirals to, to sort of suppress any viral um, growth so so would that be a way of preventing the virus from spreading but, but i think that's one question but to answer that I, I think we're going to need major randomized controlled trials to to address that question so we have the right high quality evidence that can make sure we're doing the right thing for our patients so there's a a, a challenge there to move into the era of, of high quality trials for these patients um lizzie do we have the results of the final poll so the final poll, if uh, everybody can um, have a look now, um, we just want to know uh, after all of this discussion, how will this data help you the most? Um, please let us know. Thank you. Um, and can you ju just, we're moving to a close. Before I thank everyone, can you just 
put up the housekeeping issues for getting certificates and things you needed to talk about? Yes, of course, of course. So just some information for you. So um, we will be sending out an email with a link to a short survey. And after completing this survey, you'll be able to access uh, your uh, CBD, CPD certificate for one point accredited from the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Um, also later on, uh, with a follow-up email, you also have access to on-demand for this webinar and all in the future series so that you can watch them back at your convenience. Uh, this webinar will also be on our YouTube channel, uh, but you need to watch this from a desktop. And also we will be converting it, the audio file, into a podcast that you can access on uh, the common platforms like iTunes and Spotify so that you have many different formats to be able to listen to this if you'd like. Um, please join us for our next webinar, which will be um, on the 25th of May at 2 p.m. Uh, GMT plus one time, uh, London time. And it will be the outcomes from the first 1,200 COVID surge cancer patients to inform decision-making, save cancer surgery during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, again, all of this information is available on our website and will be emailed to you as well. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much. I, um, can I just thank those who have contributed today? And that is Dimitri and Joanna. And thank you for all the late nights and, and putting your efforts into this data. Um, I'd also like to thank our, our panelists who, and I'll just re-mention you just for those who joined a bit later. So Antonio's joined us from Mexico, Brittany's joined us from the US, and Gatano's joined us from Italy. Um, and thank you three very much for, for your collaboration within the project and for giving up your, your international time today. Um, uh, I'll just make a comment on the results of the poll. So how will this data help you? Well, the most common way is that it will help how we will speak to patients about the risks of surgery, which is really important. People are also going to use it to inform departmental guidelines, which is a good idea changing threshold for operations. I think we've seen a lot of that. Um, prioritizing patients for surgery is a really interesting um, concept and, and how we enter the next phase of surgery. Um, expanding our own knowledge base. And of course, we do need to prepare for the future. Um, our next, we're going to, we are releasing our data in this method as soon as we have it available. So our next um, release of data will be on May the 25th. That's at two o'clock UK time. And we're gonna get into cancer surgery and the questions we're trying to answer. So this is elective cancer surgery. If you bring an uninfected patient into your hospital and you're doing a, a COVID outbreak, what happens to them? And really we're gonna to look to answer two questions. Firstly, what happens between the concept of a cold COVID-free hospital and a hot COVID unit. So depending on, on what sort of environment you're bringing the patient into. And secondly, what the, the broad effects of screening those patients prior to surgery are. So, so that's May the 25th and we do get oversubscribed. So please do, please do subscribe to the link. But I'll draw things to a close there and I'll thank you all for tuning in. And I remind you that we're really doing this to take this information back to our patients. So thank you all for, for tuning in and watching and thank you to the speakers and to our panelists and goodbye.